welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. As listeners may well know, on January 6th, there was a riot instigated by pro-Trump and far-right forces at Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Among these individuals were the Canadian-created Proud Boys. Reporting from Vice suggests that there may have been plans for violence in advance by this group. They allegedly were wearing orange hats and may have been carrying radios in which to coordinate their activities. A week following the violence, Canadian politicians condemned the attack. Minister of Public Safety Bill Blair also indicated that they were looking to see if there was evidence to support listing the Proud Boys on Canada's list of terrorist entities. Joining me to discuss this issue today are podcast members Jessica Davis and Leah West to look at both the listings process as well as the implications for groups and individuals when they are in fact listed. Thanks for joining me, guys. Nice to be here, Steph. Nice to see you, Steph. So Leah, I wanted to start with you because you have literally written a textbook about this, which includes this. And I was wondering if you could actually describe the listings process for our listeners who may be confused as to what is in fact going on. Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways to approach this. One is that under the Criminal Code of Canada, we define terrorist activity and terrorist groups. We don't define terrorism. So in order to capture certain conduct under the criminal code, we need to fit either people or actions under these definitions, terrorist activity or terrorist groups. I'm going to start with terrorist activity because it's important for understanding what is a terrorist group. So terrorist activity has three components to it. It's defined. There is a motive element, an intent element, and kind of a kinetic or physical element to terrorism. So With respect to the kinetic or physical element, there has to be serious violence, serious violence that could or does endanger someone's life or cause property damage that could foreseeably endanger someone's life or seriously impact public services, for example, that would then have a public health and safety implication. So it's not any type of violence. It has to be a serious amount of violence or the violence has to be of a serious nature. Right. It can't just be, for example, like it can't just be a barroom brawl. It has to be something a little bit more. Yeah. uh, Well, it it can't just be breaking windows, for example, or what we see in more traditional type riots. If we want to think about maybe the Vancouver riots that may or may not have given rise to the level of seriousness. Yes, it has to be a serious level of violence. So just throwing rocks through a window, for example, or destroying property where that destruction has no probability of actually causing harm to someone, that wouldn't qualify. The other thing you need to have is a certain intent. And the intent has to be to create fear in a certain population, either a segment of the population or the Canadian population, or that is intended to cause government essentially to do or not do something. Right. So that's the the intent behind that violence. Right. The violence can't be violence on its own. It has to be violence connected to that intent. And then the third thing that we have in Canada is a motive requirement that says you have to be motivated to have that intent and to pursue that violence for a political, religious or ideological reason. Okay, so those are the three elements. Now, terrorist groups under the criminal code, you can kind of be a, what we call a self-nominating terrorist group, 
or you can be a listed group. So a group that we've already defined and said, this is a terrorist group, and that's this entity's list. And this is being on this list is actually narrower than the self-nominating group. I'm going to put that away for now. Sorry, can you just explain what you mean by self-nominating? Like, do they raise their hand or like, hi, we're the terrorists? Um, like, yeah. is that what it is essentially? Uh, so when I, I mean self-nominating, self-nominating means they're not already on the list, but they meet the criteria set out in the criminal code that, you know, even if we haven't listed a group, but a group then does engage in, in terrorist activity or has a purpose to fulfill terrorist activity, just because they haven't been listed doesn't mean they can't be a terrorist group, right? So right. there's we a different threshold there yeah. um, and, it's, and, and it's broader. We can still prosecute them. We can still say that this is a, a, it's activity that was done to support that group, but it it's a way of not getting stuck with a group not being listed and then not being able to prosecute people for supporting or facilitating a terrorist group. Right. So the other thing we have is the is the actual list, the list that we maintain, which um, Jess may talk about, is is partially a requirement under international law. Actually, something that uh, arose largely after two thousand and one for a variety of reasons. But under that list, the group has to have already engaged in terrorist activity to be listed. So there needs to be enough evidence for the Minister of Public Safety to reasonably believe that the group has engaged in terrorist activity to be listed. And then once the minister is satisfied that that is the case, they make a recommendation to the governor and council, which is essentially cabinet, to have them listed. And once they're listed, it's public. It's, you know, there's no, usually no forewarning that a group is being considered for listing, which is in itself problematic. But typically once a group is listed, they go on a list, that list is published. You can find it online. It explains the basis for the listing. And then now, it used to be two, but now it's five years Um, since the National Security Act of 2017 passed, that listing needs to be reviewed on a five-year basis. And there is a process for asking for delisting and for consideration. That's not super relevant, so I'll just leave it there. Thanks. That's helpful. Just just to be clear, it's so so. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's both. These are both entities that Canada has decided to list itself, as you said, through the governor and councillor cabinet. But also, these are entities that are on the list passed by the United Nations Security Council. The UN Security Council can designate certain entities as terrorist groups, and as such, we put them on the list. Is that correct? It's not necessarily just because the UN. Um, has put them on a list that we put them on the list. We still have to pass our criminal code standard. And I'm just going to read that out just for the sake of clarity. Please. It's that the an entity has knowingly carried out, attempted to carry out, participated in or facilitated a terrorist activity, or the entity has knowingly acted on behalf of or the direction of or in association with an entity referred to in paragraph A. So that that first criteria. And again, there has to, the minister needs to be satisfied on reasonable grounds, which is, you know, a probability threshold. Right. And, and just to be clear, before we move to the kind of consequences of this, it's, we now also have a process to get off of that terrorism list as well, which came about when the Harper government decided to delist the MEK kind of group of Iranian ex 
pets that also might be a cult. We decided to delist them for whatever reason at the time. Yeah, so there is a delisting process. Basically, part of that review that I used to be a part of at the Department of Justice is on a five-year basis, you have to make sure that the minister is still able to satisfy the threshold. So on a, on a five-year basis, every group has to be uh, reconsidered under the threshold to see if they still merit being on the list. I mean, groups may no longer exist, for example, and so may no longer need to be listed entities. And there's also a process by which into people can apply to have the groups delisted. You know, it's if you don't hear from the minister, he's decided not to. But there is and then an appeals process that can be judicially reviewed. Thank you for that. That's extremely helpful as an introduction to how a group might be on this list in the first place. And Jess, you've actually been doing some writing on this. You had an editorial in the Globe and Mail, which effectively talks about the consequences of being listed, much of which is financial. And I was wondering, can you maybe walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the consequences for being listed is for the group's assets to be frozen or seized. And generally speaking, most terrorist groups don't actually hold a lot of assets in their name, but this is particularly applicable to like nonprofit organizations or non-governmental organizations of which we have one or two on the list, I think. So, you know, the assets get seized and frozen. Those are the direct consequences of being listed, but there are a number of follow-on effects that are actually kind of interesting. So under Canadian law, under our Anti-Money Laundering Counter-Terrorist Financing Act, our banks and other financial institutions are responsible for preventing essentially money laundering and terrorist financing. And one of the things that they can do when a group is listed is that they can use that listing as part of their grounds to uh, basically decline to conduct financial transactions on behalf of people who are associated with it. So the Proud Boys is actually a kind of a unique case because we have so many of them who have been publicly named and they've overtly tried to name themselves. You know, they've been very proud to be associated with this group. They've gone um, to a bunch of protests and, and basically declared who they are. There could be a lot of very interesting implications if the listing were to come about in the sense of people who were or are affiliated with this group being essentially the, the technical term is debanked or de-risked from their financial institutions, not being able to conduct transactions like buying a house, that kind of thing. There's also another effect that's a bit more sort of a, a third order effect. And it's they're in a, it affects their ability to travel. Part of this is because there are companies around the world, one of which is named World Checker Refinitive, that maintain lists of people who are associated with terrorist organizations. And then governments around the world will check this list. They can use it as grounds to deny them entry into their country. So, you know, you, you come into Canada, somebody runs a quick check in this database and all of a sudden they're like, well, you probably, we don't really want you in the country. You know, every country has different, different grounds for that. So that's one of the other sort of third order effects. And the same thing applies for foreign financial transactions. You know, these lists are used by banks and financial institutions around the world. So it complicates people's lives immensely and very quickly. So for example, if someone is uh, identified as a proud boy, uh, Canada decides to list this organization and then suddenly this individual may find out he, he no longer has a bank account, cannot open a bank account, cannot send money, uh, all these different kinds of things. That's exactly it. You know, the individual may get 
uh, a very politely worded letter from their bank saying that they no longer want to do business with them. So yeah, so we're talking- Here's a check for your remaining balance. Oh, great. Good luck. And I'll I'll just add that it, it, it doesn't only impact those, and Jess can speak to this more completely than I can, but is that it does have implications for individuals who then provide some sort of service or financial support to those groups, right? That, that becomes an offense under the criminal code because the group itself becomes listed facilitating or assisting a terrorist group is also an offense, which can be, you know, there's no monetary threshold or support threshold to what is support, right? Anybody who provides any type of assistance to this group or members of this group, therefore, may fall under the criminal code offenses for support or, sorry, facilitation or assistance to a terrorist group. That's actually worth a follow-up question, Leah, for you. If this listing were to happen, would those laws apply retro- retroactively? No. So, okay, so basically what I'm taking from this is like, even if they're, they wanted to send $50 to their mom or vice versa, the mother could be charged with sending money to someone if, it was, even if they want to give their little proud boy son a birthday present. Well, yeah, because if we think back to the Jack Letts case, Jack Letts being a British Canadian who went to ISIS, his parents were ultimately um, convicted of support to terrorism because they sent money to their son. And just to go back to Jessica's question, I said no, but the there is a caveat to that. They don't have to have been a terrorist group based on an entity, right? They could have been a terrorist group based on that self-nominating terrorist group provision at the time that support or assistance was provided. And then in that case, there may be grounds for saying that somebody provided financial support to a terrorist group. So it's, it's not a complete no, I should have been more clear, but you would have to establish that prior to the date of listing that the group itself met the criteria of a terrorist group. But again, that is a lower threshold because at that time, the terrorist activity need not have been attempted yet. Right. And so just to illustrate this with a bit of a concrete example, if there were, for instance, individuals who traveled to the, I guess we're calling it a riot at Capitol Hill, and some of the activity that in, was engaged in there, if that was deemed to be terrorist activity, and they could have, could be charged with terrorist activity, if somebody financed that trip, they could potentially be facing financing charges. Yes, and it wouldn't necessarily be because of the existence of a terrorist group. It could be because they directly supported terrorist activity, but it could also be because they um, provided assistance to a terrorist group. Interesting. So thank you so much for that kind of overview. So we've kind of set out what the process is and what the consequences of being listed are. And Leah, I think you expressed this well when you described the self-nominating category that operationally, it doesn't necessarily make a difference. Just because you're a listed terrorist entity doesn't suddenly mean there's like a, a huge flourish of new terrorism investigations or new possibilities. I think, Jess, as you correctly stated, that a lot of these implications have to be, tend to be financial and things like this. So I, I think that that's just important to say, because there was a lot of questions this week where people were really asking, okay, well, what really is the operational effect of listing a group like the Proud Boys? Yeah, I'll just say that it can make it somewhat easier on the criminal side, right? If you're trying to get warrants, for example, to investigate terrorism offenses, if the group is already listed, there may be less work to do to get the warrant. 
because you've already said there's already a level of satisfaction that you reasonably believe the group is a terrorist organization and warrants for terrorist investigations have a lower threshold. You don't need to prove that you've tried and failed every investigative technique short of interception, and they also last longer. So in a sense, they can uh, move things along. But the other thing I'll note is that when it comes time to prosecute individuals for supporting a terrorist group, for example, the fact that a group has been listed doesn't negate the prosecutor's need to then prove that that group is a terrorist group for the purposes of obtaining a conviction. They still need to go through that process. It doesn't give them an automatic bypass of proving that element of the offense. Jess, do you have anything to add on the investigation or operation side? Yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize the fact that an entity doesn't have to be listed for investigations to be ongoing into potential terrorist activity. So there could be right now a dozen investigations into Proud Boy and other not currently listed entities ongoing in this country. And we, we just have no idea. And they could still meet the threshold of terrorist activity, even if they are never listed as a terrorist entity. So the listings process really doesn't have that much impact on the investigations. As Leah said, it can make some elements easier for investigators, but it doesn't actually make it possible for investigations. Those are already possible. Right. So the next issue I wanted to discuss on the podcast is the question about this being a political exercise. And I had a lot of questions from reporters this week about that. You know, was this just, you know, the liberal government trying to be politically correct? Is this just kind of a partisan interference in matters of national security? And I, I, I mean, I have a mixed feeling about this. I mean, we've already discussed that, okay, there is a process in place where the cabinet makes a decision based on evidence provided by the national security organizations, which we should say is based on open source, in case it's ever really challenged in court, they can kind of bring it forward. And so, yeah, I mean, it's one of these things where I think it's fair to say there are political decisions along the way, but that does not necessarily mean it's politicized. As you say, it's renewed every, uh, I thought it was every two years, Leah, I'm glad you clarified that for me, every five years. And certainly I think the government can ask questions, it can set direction, but, you know, the consequences of listing someone, as we've just established, is very, very serious. And I think you want to have a certain level of ministerial accountability when cabinet or a minister kind of makes a recommendation to cabinet and that recommendation goes forward because the consequences can be pretty dire for the people who are then affected by this. So I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on this. It was, it was kind of an interesting question that came up. Leah? I have two thoughts on this. One, I think part of the reason why this question is being raised is because we've seen how the U.S. administration under Trump has tried to use listing in political ways and as a political tool, right? It's been very clearly done by Trump and his administration as a way of blacklisting, and I'm using quotes, organizations for a variety of political reasons. So I'm not surprised we're now getting this question when we see a Canadian minister say, we're looking into listing this organization, trying to understand the parity there. But I do think that there is a significant difference here. But yes, I mean, every element of national security does have political elements to it because it is you know, the highest levels of government that set intelligence priorities that then trickle down and decide what we're going to be investigating 
down the road where the priorities are for national security. And, and it's cyclical, right? It's fed by that national security apparatus as well. But, but there is, you know, an element of direction from the very beginning of when we're talking about threats to the security of Canada and where we're going to focus our energies, that is somewhat political. But I think we need to not think of this as in order to win or score political points, we have this process where we put on groups that we don't like or don't suit our ideological needs. I, having been a part of the process, like to think that if I had said that the threshold wasn't met legally, that somewhere down the line, unless there was an alternative legal opinion, that that wouldn't have had an impact in terms of listing, right? Like the the political will of the organization. But this isn't a super transparent process. So there is risk there that there could be interference from political organizations, but that then leaves the group open to appeal that listing, right? And have that challenge and tested against legal authorities in court. Although that then becomes hard for them because presumably at that point, all their assets have been seized. Which is precisely what happened in the one real appeal we've seen in the past, right? Which was the group was listed. They tried to challenge that their assets were frozen and they had no actual means to challenge it in court. And then anyone presumably who provides assistance to facilitate that challenge could then be captured by providing assistance to a terrorist group. It's a catch-22. Um, <laughs> exactly. But there is technically a mechanism by which the ministers and the governor and council's decisions can be tested against legal thresholds. So thanks for that. I guess the kind of final question I wanted to look at was, you know, I read some really thoughtful threads in the wake of the Capitol Hill attack about whether or not listing more entities was in fact a good idea. And there was one in particular from someone I believe associated with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association who said, look, the, you know, people are talking about listing the Proud Boys and more more far right entities, but really this is just making kind of the post 9-11 security state that we've had stronger, right? And when in reality, it still is really disproportionately targeting you know, organizations and groups that are Muslim or affect Muslims in particular. And, you know, so a a lot of people are concerned that more listings really just kind of give credence to the system and and the kind of overall security apparatus that they're unhappy with. And I think that there's uh, merit to this view and it's, it's definitely worth considering. And I think there's two points I might add to it. The first is Really, Jess, you and Mike just did two podcasts about sanctions and terrorist financing. And we just discussed, you know, it can have immediate dire consequences for individuals. But, you know, we sanction a lot of things, but we're not really good at enforcing any of these sanctions. So, you know, we list these terrorism entities. We don't have a lot of terrorism financing charges. We're not really good at implementing sanctions. (laughs) They may stop certain people from owning bank accounts. But in reality, the effect of this, at least in terms of Canada, doesn't really seem to be that much. And then the second thing is, and I think an important argument is that, you know, when we look at this far right violence, should we be looking to alternative means of supporting communities? We've seen some important calls for uh, the government to do more to counter far right 
groups and white supremacy in Canada. And, you know, I think that's a call to be supported, but should we be doing it through more laws and more listings, or should we be doing it through ways that actually help build community resilience to this kind of violent extremism in the first place? And that's, those are some big questions, but, you know, I, I did really see some thought provoking questions being asked this week. And I was wondering if you guys had thoughts as we kind of wind this podcast down as to whether or not this is a good thing. Just before I let you say something, I just want to jump in and say more law is very, very rarely the answer. And I say that as a national security lawyer trying to hawk a textbook. Right. I, think right. I want to pick up on, on your, your question about effectiveness stuff. I think I can illustrate this with a really interesting case. So we know that Hezbollah has been a listed terrorist entity in Canada for a number of years. Back in 2018, FinTrack, our financial intelligence unit, released a report talking very specifically that Hezbollah is financing activities in Canada. So pop quiz, how many Hezbollah terrorist financing charges have we seen in this country? I know, I know. Zero. Oh, you you got me. You beat me, Leah. (laughs) Zero. There have been, there have been absolutely zero. So I think it is very important to ask questions about effectiveness and we have these laws on the books and what are we doing with them? Um, are we funding things properly? There's like, we can unpack this for a whole podcast. I'm sure Mike and I will do that at some point in time. So I think that that's a very valid question. From my perspective, I don't think it's an either or in terms of the solutions that you're talking about stuff. I think, you know, there is an international commitment that we have to have a sanctions list and sanctions regime. We're, we're evaluated against that regime by the Financial Action Task Force, there are real repercussions. If you fail those mutual evaluations, it makes it much harder to do business internationally, um, get loans from the IMF if you need them, all of these kinds of things. Less of a concern for Canada at this stage, but again, we are trying to uphold international norms. My view of this is that I do think that we need this list and I do think we need to be listing entities on it. I think we need to be much more transparent about how we're doing that. And I think we need to apply it more evenly across the board and across ideologies and political, the political spectrum. Particularly, you know, I really want to know more about that listing threshold, because when you look at things like Combat 18 and Al-Qaeda, the descriptions of those activities are very, very different. Combat 18 has basically two incidents on the public listing, which is, you know, a target, a politically targeted assault and a firebombing that make the whole grounds for their listing. Then you've got Al-Qaeda, which is, you know, I don't have to go into the history of Al-Qaeda and the terrorist activity that they've engaged in, in Canada and abroad. So, you know, these differences are really stark. And I think we Canadians really deserve to have more information about that and to have these rules that are, you know, can seem fairly arbitrary applied much more evenly. I'm just wondering, I mean, that that's a really interesting point about the threshold, but I guess my only answer to that would be, and I don't know what the answer here is, but I mean, presumably listing groups before they get a giant rap sheet would be a good thing as well, maybe. Yes. And, and when you're, ta- and you're actually just engaged in that legal threshold process, it's not a, I need to see X many activities that meet the threshold for terrorist activity before I list a group, right? You only really need to see one evidenced attempt or engagement in terrorist activity to list a group. And year over year, those rap sheets and the basis for listing based on open source information can obviously grow, but certain entities don't I mean, there certain entities engage in a lot of planning and a lot of talk, but not a lot of action. 
that's not as long as they've actually engaged in that action, I wouldn't say that that's really a reason for not listing them. The other thing I'll say, and I know Jess, you've talked about this before, and I think you talk about it in your recent Global Mail op-ed, is that I think the entities listing, you said it's not necessarily about enforcement, but it does offset some of the burden for counterterrorism off of the government and onto public entities, right? And onto public individuals to not engage or provide services to terrorist groups. So now banks are responsible for making sure that they're not providing services, right? Or Rogers, for example, providing services, you know, Zoom can't give Proud Boys Regina a license, you know, so I think it, it does offset some of the responsibility onto public entities. And I think that's where you see more of the effectiveness of making it harder for these groups to do what they want to do, not necessarily stopping them or punishing them for what they're doing. Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing about that is if, you know, if the threshold is one or one terrorist activity, the question then becomes, why are we not listing groups like Adam Waffen Division, the three percenters, these things that have so many fairly obvious incidents that probably meet the threshold of terrorist activity. And so this is where that, that transparency question comes in. It's like, yeah. how are we picking and choosing which groups we're pursuing? What are the decisions being made about that? Why is it taking so long? You know, we saw the listing of the first two far-right groups back last year, the year, year before last, and then absolutely nothing since. So, you know, we don't necessarily want this to be a politicized question, but there definitely needs to be a lot more transparency behind the decision, the political decisions that are being made about this. I think you've put your finger on the exact right question, Jess. And you took the words right out of my mouth. I think that's, that's exactly right. Like, but also word on the street from I, you know, you hear things around town and government. I strongly suspect that if the Proud Boys are listed, they won't be alone. I, I strongly believe that we will see more of these groups being listed. So it's going to be interesting to see if and when public safety does move in that direction this year. But I think this is a very useful discussion, guys. I certainly I've learned a lot. And, you know, if you want to know more, you can always get Leah's textbook <laughs> available through Irwin Law, baby. Irwin Law. <laughs> we, Buy uh, the book. I get like a dollar in royalties, but I think. We're going to be doing more on the podcast about the book and more on the website about the book and asynchronous content. So when you really want to know about the nerdy process questions, you won't need to listen to me on Intrepid. That's fantastic. It'll be great. Thank you so much. And I would also encourage everyone to check out Jess's op-ed in the Globe and Mail that was on Monday, January 11th on the impact on terrorist financing as well. But I don't think you get a dollar when you read it. So I do not. <laughs> we'll work on your textbook, Jess. It's great. Thanks, guys, so much for being here and, and working through these issues. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks.